Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 104 for Saturday, April 16th, 2022. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer Ken Gagney, and joining me is Commodore Mark Thompson. Hello, Mark. Hello again. How are you doing today? I am great. It's good to have you back on the show. You were just here last month on March 14th to talk about Picard Season 2, Episode 2, Penance, and now you're back to talk about Picard Season 2, Episode 7, Monsters. A lot has happened between now and then. <laughs> you mean for us or in Picard? I have to say both. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anything going on with you you want to share? Um, with me, I am on my spring break. And so I'm enjoying a little bit of uh, time outside the classroom and visiting my family here in Houston. Ah, fantastic. Now, I was just in Chicago recently, which is where you and I got to catch up. And then we ch- recorded that episode while I was in Chicago. I am now in Laconia, New Hampshire home to the world's largest video game arcade, which is why I'm here, to play every single game that I can. And our dear friend Sabriel is incommunicado this week. She is off on an away mission, very secretive, no hailing frequencies. But she will be back next week. And this is a a planned temporary departure, which is why we have such a fantastic substitute co-host today. So Mark, thank you for joining me. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. So like I said, we're here to talk about Picard. We'll dive right into it. No introduction is needed for either of us because you were just on the show recently and people who have been listening to Picard season two are well familiar with your dulcet tones. So (laughs) monsters, a lot happened this week. Overall impressions. Did you like this episode, Mark? Um, I really thought I was not going to like this episode at the start. Um, It took me about 10 or 15 minutes to kind of get acclimated to what was going on. Um, and then to kind of really appreciate where it was going. Um, I really liked where it ended up. Um, I'd say overall, uh, it, I, I enjoyed it. Why did you think you would not enjoy it? Um, it felt like we were going backwards right at the beginning. Um, I was kind of confused by being in Picard's ready room, um, either from, I guess, maybe Stargazer ready room. I'm not, I'm not sure. It was mentioned later in the episode that it was his ready room. Um, and then speaking to someone I wasn't familiar with, except that I had seen the face before and it took me quite a while to realize that I was most familiar with him from um, 12 monkeys and from Battlestar Galactica. Uh, And then to find out later on that he was his father, but I guess I just spilled a whole bunch of stuff there, but (laughs) um, no, being in that close environment and not really sure who this person was, um, I think kind of took me out of the moment. Um, and it wasn't until we started um, bringing uh, um, talent back into his brain <laughs> that I actually started uh, getting much more involved in the episode. Yeah, there were certainly some parts of the script this week that I liked a lot more than others. Not necessarily actors, but just parts of the script. Like, as you just said, when he opens with the conversation with the psychiatrist, I found the dialogue there to be very disjointed. Like, at one point, the psychiatrist says, I was told that you were stubborn and Picard gets unreasonably upset. You've been talking to other people about me. I'm like, of course. Well, for two reasons, one, you have a Starfleet record. And second of all, you're famous. So you shouldn't be surprised that people talk about you. And there were just several moments where Picard would be like, this is a waste of time. What are you getting at? And he would be saying that in response to what I thought was a very reasonable comment or question. Yes, it uh, to me it felt like he was out of place and didn't quite know why he was where he was. Um, I also kind of got the, the impression that um, the uh, uh, therapist could just be another face for Q towards the end there because a lot of the things he said were very, in my mind, Q like. Um, I don't know if that'll pan out in the future, but uh, we'll see if uh, Hugh decided to play Picard's father at some point. (laughs) Yeah, almost speaking in riddles, it seemed like. Yes. When that psychiatrist first showed up, I too was trying to figure out who he was. And I thought, was there a missed opportunity here for them to use a familiar face like Dr. Bashir or Dr. Culber? 
And when I finally realized, oh, it's supposed to be his father, I was like, no, they should not have used somebody familiar. But <laughs> right. I, just the uh, the hairstyle at first made me wonder, is that Bashir? He's wearing like the right colors. He's got the right do. He's got the right scruff. Not that weirdly not- enough, it was the voice that yeah. had me convinced because the, there was quite a bit of dialogue or um, monologue, I guess, before uh, the character was revealed. And so um, at first I thought, is that Bashir? And then when I saw his hair, I was like, is that Bashir? <laughs> <laughs> but that's not a form of medicine that Bashir has traditionally been known to practice. Right. It isn't. Oh, um, and I also, it, part of the, uh, part of how Picard responded um, and the way that uh, the uh, character was talking back to him or the, the therapist was talking back to him, it seemed like maybe this was also a hologram um, or holographic uh, doctor of sorts was very disorienting. (laughs) It certainly seemed very inception. Like, like, like when Talon went into his brain, she went not into the dream, but into the story being told in the dream. Right. And that was, um, that was fascinating too, that she didn't end up in, I guess, Picard's subconscious, she ended up in a story in a subconscious. Right. Yeah, very, very Inception-like. <laughs> and you said that you liked that part of the episode more once Talon became more involved? Yeah. Um, I, I wasn't quite... I, I, I appreciated that we started back with his mother again. And I think that it's been hinted at enough times that his mother has uh, some sort of psychological issues and that she's that, it, that has affected him and how he's grown up. But it wasn't until a talent popped into the dream that I was really bought into it. Also, can we talk about the uh, device that Talon used to get into the dream? Yeah. What about and, it? And how it was made for uh, Romulan slash uh, other, other ears than human ears. <laughs> well, when she was wearing it on her head, I thought, well, that's a very obvious call out to the, suspicion that she is Romulan because as you said it is shaped for her ears and also the fact that when she put it on Picard she had to disable the parental controls yes <laughs> I thought I, I kind of like balked at that line for a moment and I was like what what does she mean <laughs> I have to assume is, she's kidding is Picard, because is Picard too young for this no <laughs> Right? Be, like, yeah. are there kids? Are there watchers, supervisors out there who like take their kid to work day? Like, now don't <laughs> go into your classmates' heads. You know, we don't allow that until you're 12 years old. Yeah, I think funny. I think it was just a joke. Oh, I'm sure it was a throwaway line. Uh, she she seems to be um, intentionally uh, more cheeky than Laris. I, I think to kind of distinguish the characters a little more, even though is it possible that maybe she's Picard's watcher, like the family Picard's watcher? I don't know. Do you think that she is Laris or that she is an ancestor? Um, I don't know. I just don't feel like that many individuals out there could have such strong lineage as to continue showing up with the same face over and over again. Um, so I, th- I think maybe she can't be as, as, you know, she can't have the, the soon, uh, sorry. I always forget, uh, data's ancestors name. Yep. Adam soon, Adam soon. I don't think she can, I don't think she can have Adam soon level of genetic dominant or uh, prominence. So, um, I'm, I'm hoping that she is Laris. That's interesting. So she continues her mission to watch over first Rene Picard and then Jean-Luc Picard in his retirement years. Yes. That, that's what I'm, I'm hoping for it, especially since there is so much temporal disturbance around Picard in his later years because of this particular incident, um, that if there were a Watcher society and it continued to exist after the 21st century, that um, they would be interested in what's happening to Picard right now. No, that makes a lot of sense, especially where those Picard timelines intersect in this season of Picard. Yes. So going back to the the dream, I I liked all the symbology that was happening, all the metaphors, like uh, the Picard remembering things a certain way when the reality actually being different. I'm curious though, like at the end, his dad said, take another look. 
and he realizes, oh, maybe things don't play out the way I remember. But where is that information coming from? Like, was it buried in Picard's subconscious? Because there is no external source of information here. It's all happening in his head. I would have to imagine him taking a closer look, a deeper dive at his memory and maybe pulling back the veil of monsters and um, uh, demons and dungeons and realizing the actual physical aspect and the locations that those things happened and how his mother abandoned him in the basement uh, or, or in the yeah, basement um, for his father to discover him. So it, it must just be his own psyche making a closer examination of the facts. Yeah. There's a, another movie I saw called the final cut where a character uh, he's an adult and he remembers as a kid that he and a friend were playing and he pushed the friend and the friend fell from a great height and like his, he was bleeding. He was, un, he was dead. And his friend's like, Oh my God, I killed my friend. And he ran away and he lived his whole life with that guilt. And then he finally gets a video recording of what actually happened like 30 years earlier. And there's no blood and the kid's not dead. And after he runs away, the kid gets up. He's like, Oh, that sucked. And he walks off. So he actually didn't kill his friend, but like he remembers a much more macabre moment with all this gore and the reality didn't reflect that. And buried in his subconscious was the visual memory of what actually Mm -hmm. happened. But, you know, time plays tricks on you and you remember things differently. And that seems to be what happened with Picard. You remember his mom being dragged through a door by his father. And the reality was his mom had as you said, some mental health challenges. Yes. Um, And uh, for his like prior version of his memory to actually include physical manifestations of his mother's demons. um, I think uh, processing that as an adult or being forced to process that as an adult made him like perhaps look deeper into where, what the source of those demons were. Mm. Although it does seem like there are a couple of unfortunate patterns here. One is people in Star Trek not being willing to get mental health help. Like <laughs> yes. in in this case, his not only was Picard belligerent to a psychiatrist, but his mom was unwilling to get help. His dad said like, oh, the only thing we could do for her was lock her away behind this white door. Like it's the 23rd or 24th century. You have doctors, you have medicine. You can't yeah. help somebody. You have gamma wave um, improvers or... Yeah, like neural oscillators. <laughs> yes. Come on. It, yeah, it, it is kind of surprising, especially the way they're able to develop or to deliver medications for when people are in physical pain. You'd think they'd be able to do the same thing for the for the brain. Right. And especially in season two of Picard, they are portraying the Picard family as having a history of mental health issues among the women in the family and not really being able to do much about it either. Um, Except to talk them down from the ledge. (laughs) Right. Um, In the case of uh, Renee Picard, anyways, it it appeared that that Captain Picard was able to um, talk her down from her anxiety and until he got hit by a Tesla. Right. <laughs> and I'm still kind of curious as, as to whether that was intentional or because they wanted to make it seem like the near future. Um, but uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I can't imagine a member of the Soong family driving a Volkswagen Beetle. True. Very true. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that, uh, you know, a lot of interesting developments from um, exploring Picard's uh, youth. And um, really, I think that helped him connect to Talon in a way that he hadn't yet, that they really became a lot closer. Yeah, she went into his mind without his permission, and he seemed okay with that. He wasn't, you know, he's angry at the psychiatrist for talking about him behind his back, but not angry at Talon for going into his subconscious. That level (laughs) of invasion is okay. And, and yeah, I think the fact that she looks like Laris has always enamored Picard to her. So I don't think that there's going to be a lot of love lost because I think they're a pretty tight duo already. Yes. And they certainly seem to bond quite well once they um, came out of the 
Romulan technological mind meld. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when they came out, well, first of all, there seems to be more to this story. Talon said that a couple of times, and we saw little boy Picard opening the door that was hiding his mother. So Produ- producing the key, right? Did not did not quite get to the point of opening the door. Oh, okay. Or at least in my in my memory, yeah. Um, he did he did hold the key. But there does seem to be more going on here, and I'm wondering what more could there be? What were we supposed to have found out other than the fact that his dad maybe wasn't a monster? And did Picard make a mistake as a kid? Like, did he open the door to let his mom out? And that's it. That, maybe that led to her death. Uh, that is, would be, would be in line with the story. And I think um, would be kind of tragic because you'd hope that eventually one of the two got some um, professional medical help. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, that does seem to be where it might be leading that uh, Picard did something to cause things to be worse. Yeah. And it seems like his dad died fairly young as well. Cause his dad said, Oh, you live to be older than me, but I got to keep my hair. That's right. I do remember that line and thought it was quite clever. <laughs> There were some other lines in the background when Talon first went into his memory. You could hear echoes of previous episodes of TNG. Right. Um, Um, The one that I picked up the best was um, about uh, um, Locutus. I'm Locutus. mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, I heard that line. I heard him say something about, they're the victims here. You make them who they are. I didn't recognize that line, but it's from an episode called The Hunted. Okay. And then I also heard Picard saying uh, he was screaming, there are, and I knew that the rest had to be four lights, which is from oh, yeah. <laughs> Chain of Command. Right. And so those are at least three of the episodes that they pulled audio from for that. I don't know how they chose that. I don't know why adult Picard was screaming in little boy Picard's memories, but <laughs> I thought it was a sort of a, a terrifying introduction for talent to walk into, and it seemed appropriate in that respect. Yes, it uh, uh, feels like they were taking all of uh, or a few of the most intense moments and and bringing them into play. Yep. So what, what, as you were saying, when they got out of that Romulan mind meld, Picard was like, we need to go on the offensive. We need to take this to Q. And he was saying that there's something about these memories that Q wants me to remember, that he wants me to work through. How did Picard figure that? Like, how did he decide, oh, this trauma that I just experienced in this clinic is something Q wanted me to have? Um, perhaps it's from that concept that Q is all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful. Um, and maybe like events that happen like, lead up to this inevitably. Um, that, that, that's kind of a, a, a dark view of it um, that they don't really have much control of their situation since they've landed back in the 21st century. Um, although soon uh, was a tool of um, Q and soon is the one that sent him into this pseudo coma. Um, no. Oh, that's absolutely true. But how could Q have known what would happen? Like, Oh, if I hit Picard with a car, <laughs> he's going to think about his mom. <laughs> I think the only way that Q could have um, directed all of that is if Q were also able to pop into Picard's head and be his uh, therapist. Well, that's an interesting theory because Q seems to be very limited. Picard went to Guinan and said, I need you to summon Q, and they weren't able to. And I presume that's because Q isn't Q anymore. Unless Q's in Picard's head and was already there. Oh, that's scary. <laughs> Sorry. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's extremely plausible and it would be kind of fast and free and loose writing. But uh, um, I think it, 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 it's what I thought when Q didn't show up, I'm like, Oh, is he already there? Huh? I see with the board queen being in Agnes Gerardi's head to have Q in Picard's head. I feel like, and especially since Talon was just in his head, I feel like, <laughs> I, I feel like these mental landscapes are just getting a little too crowded. Right. Exactly. Yes. Uh, only, only, um, only one extra occupant at a time, please. Right. <laughs> kind of like being John Malkovich. Sorry, it's full. <laughs> yeah. Later. What did you think of that scene with Guinan in the 10 forward bar? Oh, I, 
I felt I, so I, I listened to your podcast um, and as the Guinan character has been coming out, uh, how we're kind of like, or in this podcast, we're kind of wondering whether or not it's the same Guinan or a different Guinan. Um, I felt like this was the most Guinan that the new actor has been. And I really did like the way that unfolded. Um, uh, I really kind of appreciated the callback to um, her hands raising up against um, against uh, uh, Q uh, or in order to kind of assess Q. Um, and um, so it was quite interesting to have that callback. Um, and I think it really did make a better connection between um, our Guinan, or I guess the Guinan of Picard and the Guinan of TNG. Yeah, I, that's an astute observation. I agree that she was more familiar to us in her uh, characteristics and in her mannerisms in this episode. I was very intrigued to hear that the Q, the, the denizens of the Q continuum <laughs> and the Elorians had a truce. And right. like, so if the Q are all powerful, why would they ever need to call a truce with anybody? Um, maybe, maybe we're not yet aware of all of the power that the Elorians have. And that we may not ever know, and that's okay with me. There's some mystery there, and I, I can't help but wonder what the mystery is. But for now, sometimes the answer is not as good as the question. But sure. I like that I like that they're hinting at it, like there's something there. Yes. And and the and the fact that we have this bottle that is supposed to house the moment that it happened and probably the reasons why it happened, and then she drinks it, and that's just a way of calling the cue back. I, I was hoping for a flashback where we would like see that play out, but then I guess I'm kind of glad, like you said, that they kept some of the mystery there. Mm-hmm. Although you would think that if you're able to summon a being that exists outside of time and space, it wouldn't be limited to the Q of Picard's era because we've seen other Q, especially in Voyager. Yes. So, so just because one of the Q is unavailable, why wouldn't somebody else show up? True. Uh, well, unless Picard's Q is the one that was at the peace conference. And so that particular bottle only summons him. Oh, that's interesting because they did recognize each other when Q first came aboard the enterprise. Yes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, at the end of that bar scene, we have an FBI agent show up. Right. Which, we've had FBI agents show up in Star Trek before. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember exactly when, um, but uh, I, no, I can't remember when. Um, but has this guy been, has this actor been in Star Trek before? That's a good question. Why do you ask? Um, he just looks really familiar. So I didn't recognize him, but I found out online that he was in an episode of Star Trek Voyager called Relativity, where Seven of Nine was bouncing around time trying to stop Admiral Braxton from blowing up Voyager. Oh, okay. So she was temporarily a temporal agent uh, of Starfleet of the 29th century. Right. And, and the, that's the actor that, this was, that act- recruited her? So this actor was Lieutenant Duquesne okay. from, of the USS Relativity. Now, in this episode of Picard, uh, he played Agent Wells. If you look very closely on the badge he pulls out, oh, Wells, okay. of course, being a, a reference to H.G. Wells, author of The Time Machine. All right. And it's also a reference to, in that episode of Voyager, when Lieutenant Duquesne was on the USS Relativity, the relativity was a Wells class starship. Oh wow, that is a incredibly deep dive, <laughs> <laughs> and not anything I would have figured out on my own. Right, um, I'm glad you did look that up. Um, I uh, that, that was one of the uh, new. Well, I, obviously, I looked up uh, Picard's father to see where he'd been in, in the past because he looked so familiar. But I did not look up um, the the agent's uh, um, acting history. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that'll be interesting to see if we are the the the, the Wells is a cover for him. Um, wait, no, uh, and also it'll be interesting to go back and look at the credits to see if he's credited as Wells or Duquesne. Oh, 
Now, see, even though I just spelled all that stuff out, it never occurred to me that not only is it the same actor, it might be the same character. If it right. was, if it was Lieutenant Duquesne, you would think he would be more discreet than bringing in all those other FBI agents with guns to raid the place. Right, unless he felt that that was easiest to make it look like a an FBI raid instead of, um, I guess, yeah. If, if he went in by himself, it would be a lot more discreet. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. And also, wouldn't that version of Starfleet from the 29th century require that Picard's timeline be restored first? Unless this is how they're trying to restore it by removing him from interference. Ooh, that's complicated. <laughs> Time travel often is complicated. Gives me headaches. Ugh. And also, <laughs> I mean, there, there are two questions I have about how that ended. One is, we saw Picard drop his comm badge. I didn't go back and rewatch that scene. Did it seem to be intentional or accidental that he dropped it? Um, it seemed intentional that he was trying to make it look like the glass that was already on the floor that Guinan was sweeping up. So it, it ended up in a pile of glass. So perhaps he was thinking that if the shiny object is in a pile of other shiny objects that they already expected to be there, that nobody would look at it. That was, that was my impression that he was trying to hide it. Yeah. I assumed that he wanted to be, if he was going to be captured by the FBI, he wanted to have no future tech on him for them to, procure from him and say, Hey, what's this? Who does, what does this do? Because we saw that that was an issue for Chris earlier when he was detained by ice. Yes. And so yeah, still... I, I do think, I do think it, it, the intent was to hide it and to prevent it from being, like you said, taken with him. Mm-hmm. However, this does mean that there are a lot of butterflies being stepped on. No, I don't think there are any butterflies being stepped on at this point. I think you've taken down a full, Seven, a trip, a full triple seven plane, and just crash in the middle of a field that never happened. Like we've just stomped all over the timeline. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, there must be a giant reset button waiting for us at the end of this season because there, there have been so many influences and so many interactions that just cannot be undone now. Right. I think uh, releasing that busload of ice captives, um, that was pretty big. Um, Bringing all these people into the um, into the into Guinan's bar into ten forward um, was also um, a major incident. I feel, and uh, especially um, now that Gerardi's running around as um, a board queen in waiting um, and blowing out windows. Uh, yes, yeah, and the biggest disruption to the timeline. Or or one of them anyway that we I saw in this episode. This episode was a big one for temporal disruptions. Uh, <laughs> I like the way one person summarized it on Reddit, which was uh, Chris transports Teresa and Ricardo to his ship, which is a good decision and will have no consequences. <laughs> yes, I was I was looking at that, and um, especially like once he started, well, the, the probably the. The point where of no return, of course, was when he had the uh, neural oscillator um, transported into his hands. Like, couldn't you have transported that into his pocket so he could just like reach in and be like, "I've been holding on to this the whole time." Um, no, you had to transport it into his hands so that uh, Teresa could see that, um, and then uh, turns around and it's like, "I trust you," even though you don't probably know which way is up for this right. device. <laughs> Yeah, like, and also, yes, she's a doctor, but she's not a doctor from the 24th century. And also, it doesn't seem like you need to be a doctor to use that device. You just wave it over the person. Right. Unless, I mean, does she know exactly how far she's supposed to hold it? How did she not? How did she end up holding the pin that she was holding? Or right. holding it the upside that she was holding it, right? I, <laughs> I have never seen in the history of Star Trek anything be transported right into somebody's hands. I thought that was actually a cool effect. I have not seen that either, but um, in the Abrams Star Trek, we did see them transport people out of some pretty spectacular situations. Yes. <laughs> that was fantastic when Chekhov is running down the transporter room. He's like, I know how to do that. I know how to do that. And he yeah. captures them right out of free fall. That was amazing. But couldn't grab his mom. No, no, that'd be too hard. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the neural oscillator, I, I think he was trying to shield uh, the appearance of it, like he turned his back to her and I right. think he hoped that she wouldn't see it. And of course she did. 
right. then we get the great line, the very familiar line, are you from outer space? No, but I work there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm from Chile <laughs> instead of Iowa. Right. So, yes, it's a great callback to uh, The Voyage Home. Yeah, I feel like I need to go rewatch that movie. There have been so many references to it in this season that it does feel like I have to go back and rewatch that movie. So besides the line we just quoted and the punk rocker on the bus, are there others that I'm missing? I feel like the punk rocker on the bus was such a big one for me that that might be where I feel like there's been a lot of references. <laughs> you don't need any others. You have the punk rocker. I mean, we just need to bring back Cetacean Ops and we're good to go. Oh my gosh, I would love that. <laughs> yes. So I love Teresa's reaction when she showed up on the ship. I feel like of all the people we've ever seen discover the future of humanity, like Mark Twain, for example, or Lily from First Contact, I feel like Teresa's was one of the most authentic. Absolutely. And her kid, too. Like, I'm going to go touch everything. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Her kid gets there. I mean, they both get there and they drop whatever they're holding. Um, Her coffee cup and uh, his... um, uh, space shuttle. Um, and then, yes, he is able to, his, the plasticity of a child's mind allows him to like process it way faster than her. And yet you're absolutely right. Go touch everything. I think, <laughs> I think that would be most people's reaction once they caught up like Teresa did. <laughs> but uh, yeah, her um, just standing there in utter shock and amazement. Um, I think that's gonna, that would be the appropriate adult reaction. But I have to wonder what Chris is thinking. Like, is this can't be a long-term strategy? What does he think that they're just going to go back to being uh, doctors at that clinic and they're going to forget that this future ever happened? Or it, does he plan to take them with her, uh, with him to the future? Or is he going to stay there? I um, th- th- this is getting very complicated, and it's going back to that stomping over all of the field of. Um, butterflies we were talking about earlier um yeah i I guess i guess once once she was able to literally lean over and around his shoulder to look at that uh, neural oscillator being dropped into his hands um then i guess he figured it's all what's done is done (laughs) yeah i i i suppose if you're in for a penny in for a pound but this just I mean, not Gerardi. Uh, Rafi was warning him last episode, like, don't go there. Don't even think about going there. You're of different centuries. I don't care how much you enjoy the cigars and the loud cars. (laughs) You can't stay here. Yeah. I I think he is going to stay there. But also, if you think about what life was like 400 years ago and how utterly unsanitary and revolting it would be to actually be in those situations... I can't imagine how somebody from 25 whatever would pop back into uh, 2024 and be like, oh, yeah, I'd like to live among this swine. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And also we saw in the season premiere that he is now captain of the Stargazer. He's gotten back into Starfleet. His career is back on track. So after having just done this complete turnaround of going being a ruffian and scoundrel to being a Starfleet captain. He's now going to give that up and just be a 21st century homebody. Right. Well, I'm sure he's got some skills that he could parlay into some kind of job <laughs> with the right yeah. resume. But without affecting the timeline. Oh yeah. Cause right. Speaking of not affecting the timeline, why did we officially decide that we're going to give up on cloaking um, his ship? Why do you say that? Because um, they did an establishing shot as they were coming back to the ship and they just showed the outside of it like plain as day with, well, I mean, it was at night, but um, with no cloak on it. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah. I was thinking, oh, so we're not doing the cloaking thing anymore? It was actually uh, with Rafi and um, I believe it was with Rafi and Seven's conversation that oh, okay. we saw the establishing shot on the outside of the ship. But you know, whether it's Rafi and Seven in the ship or later Chris and his friends, we never see the Borg Queen. There should be still a shotgun shot corpse hanging from the ceiling. Well, actually, you're right. And that should be the first thing that Teresa and her son see because they're facing that direction. Right. And they get beamed in. It, so it, it shouldn't be like, we let's play around. This should be like, oh, my gosh, you have a half 
of a dead woman hanging from the wall over there. Right. <laughs> Think about that as an image. That's not a good first impression. No, it's not. So, so somebody must have cleaned it up um, when we weren't looking. Yeah, and nobody is concerned because Rafi and Seven now know that Gerardi is infected by the Borg. Right. You think, and you would think that they would go back and like check on the Borg Queen and be like, is she really dead? Is she remotely controlling Agnes? Is there anything here we can use to our advantage to determine what her last thoughts were and what her motivation is? I would just have to imagine that they they have removed her and they put her in some safe storage. <laughs> right next to Elnor. Right next to, probably in the same container as Elnor. They <laughs> uh, just have a row for each member of the cast. Like, all right, Picard, when you die, we're going to put you in this drawer. <laughs> it's like seven. He one for Elnor. It's like buying plots of, uh, of, of cemeteries with your family. Oh my gosh. That's so heartwarming. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's just the right word for that. <laughs> yes. That is, that is the right word for that. Um, but no, I would have to assume that uh, based on, um, at least Teresa's child's reaction that uh, there is no dead woman hanging on that wall. Yeah. And I don't think that they are going to go to the future because I, I mean, <laughs> Teresa and Ricardo, because mm. Teresa has a clinic and you could see how absolutely fierce she was about protecting it. When she right. found that door locked, I don't think I've ever, ever seen anybody angrier in star Trek. Right. <laughs> Like, wow, she was intimidating. Even though she had to look up at Chris, he was cowering in front of her. Yeah, I, that interaction was played very well. Um, and uh, I could see, you know, if that was your life's work and your mission to be present in, in that community and to be a positive influence, if you were being locked out of your tool for that, that that would be extremely upsetting. Right. So now to imagine going from that to her saying, I'll leave the clinic and go live with you in the 24th century. <laughs> we'll, we'll see what, we'll see what butterflies this does. <laughs> right. If I don't help anyone in this community and they just keep living their lives without um, immediate care, we'll see how that works out. Yeah. I don't think she would do that. I have to imagine that two different timelines are going to emerge from this because technically if the future that Picard is from doesn't happen, then all the time travel incursions from that future to the past haven't happened either. So like Kirk going back and meeting Gary seven or Kirk going back and saving the whales like, and uh, Cisco going back and doing the bell riots, supposedly none of those happen. And so if Chris stays where he is and everybody else goes back to the restored Picard timeline future, then the timeline that Chris will have stayed in will no longer exist. It's confusing. Unless it was all predeterministic. I don't know. <laughs> In other words, if the if the if the only reason why the future exists is because those occurrences are there. No. Um, yeah. yeah. I I I uh, this is well beyond my very limited understanding of temporal studies <laughs> right and whatever happens among the things that needs to be restored is elnor right unless unless it's like a mcu style dead in every timeline gosh i don't know yeah uh the um, one the one character who was in this episode that we haven't talked about yet was agnes yes um quite an incredible transformation on her part um walking into that club, uh, assessing the situation, getting eyes from the, that stranger and then turning around and breaking that window. Yeah. So apparently she was, the queen was manipulating her to experience endorphins, which makes it her easier to assimilate. Um, so my impression was the queen was already, was already in control, but the breaking that glass or causing that kind of, violence in that response was supposed to get an endorphin release from Gerardi's body. Um, according to seven, it sounded like so that the, um, the nanites, are they called nanites? Mm -hmm. um, the nanites would replicate faster. Um, and so that she would get to the point where she could start assimilating others. 
Which is weird to me because breaking glass doesn't cause an endorphin rush for me. Mm, I haven't done it often enough to find out. So yes, um, maybe it was getting the reaction from her audience was where the endorphin rush came in because that would be very much a performative thing, I guess. But you also have to wonder what were the repercussions? Like, did anybody in the bar call the cops? Um, I don't know. People get away with a lot of stuff in, in this version of the 21st century. So I'm, I'm wondering where exactly, how effective are our law enforcement officers in this um, alternate uh, 2024? Well, I, you, you know, that's actually something we forgot to bring up, which was, I suspect, uh, going back to Agent Duquesne or Wells arresting Picard, I suspect that they made the connection between how Picard appeared in that alley with how Rafi and Seven disappeared from that cop cruiser they stole. Oh, that's true. Yeah. If, if there were, there should be, yeah, there'd be dash cam footage of the, of them, of the two of them disappearing, or at least body cam footage from the other officer. Right. Uh, so yeah, they should be able to, assuming those visual effects are in the reels instead of just for the viewer audience. Um, yeah, that they, they should very much um, be able to connect those two things. Yeah. So that's why I imagine they are arresting Picard as opposed to just bringing him in for questioning or something. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like that would be a normal law enforcement reaction is to immediately arrest somebody who appears out of thin air. <laughs> okay. Fair. Yeah. I can see that. They're like, uh, they could be anywhere anytime they want. Also, you would feel like it would be futile for to try to arrest somebody who can appear and disappear out of thin air. Well, that's true because if the La Serena is sufficiently repaired and if these FBI agents already know about teleportation technology, then instead of dropping his comm badge, Picard should have just tapped it and said two to beam out. Exactly. Yeah. Although, does he know that? Um, yeah, he, or he already knows that Raffi and uh, Seven beamed out of that uh, squad car. So, yeah. Again, we've already stomped all over the timeline anyways. Let's just go ahead and <laughs> transport a few more people here and there. Right. Uh, going back to the bar that Agnes was in, something else that I did not realize when I saw it, but which I discovered later online. So when Agnes walks in, there is a band playing. And I had joked at the end of last week's podcast that this week, I want to see the Borg Queen Agnes going around the city, just going from karaoke bar to karaoke bar. (laughs) And if endorphins are what she needs to assimilate faster, I really thought she was going to go up on stage and start singing just like she did last week. Right. Which was beautiful, by the way. The the singing in that bar or the last week? Well, both actually. I was I was really I was really impressed last week because I was not expecting that out of uh, Gerardi's character. Um, but uh, I suspect I know where you're going with this week's bar, um, and I did really enjoy the, this lounge singer's um, act as well. Where am I going with this lounge singer? Um, I believe that I read somewhere that this lounge singer is uh, Patrick Stewart's wife. That's in correct. Real life. <laughs> That's correct. So that is Sunny Ozell is her name. And that was her actual band. And they were singing the song Take You Down from their last album called Overnight Low. So Picard, sorry, not Picard, but Patrick Stewart and Sunny <laughs> Ozell rarely allow their personal lives to intersect on a professional level. Mm-hmm. But when Picard saw the script for this episode, he said, you know what, this is just too perfect for her. So he said, hey, do you, do you want to come on the show? And she was like, when she stepped on foot on the stage, she was like, this is sacred territory. This is Star Trek. I don't do Star Trek. That's my husband's thing. And I respect that. I let him have that. And here I am in his world, in his space. And it worked out great. Well, I, I think you mentioned this kind of um, uh, very cheekily uh, a couple of episodes ago that um, this doesn't really feel like Star Trek because we're kind of cheating all of the technology and zooming in space by um, being in the 21st century. So maybe since this is Star Trek light, she it's okay that she treads in this territory. <laughs> that makes sense. If she were to show up playing a Starfleet officer, that would be a little too outside her wheelhouse. But for her to play a 21st century singer when she is a 21st century singer in the 21st century singing, <laughs> yes. I guess that makes sense. 
Yeah. Cool. Not so bad. Um, I, I, I did, I did enjoy, um, learning about that. Um, and I'm going to, on my second time going through to watch, uh, I was paying attention to her face, but I could remember it for the future. <laughs> yeah. I will. That's a part of this episode that I want to go back and rewatch. And I also now want to go look up that album and listen to her sing because I have an album by Brent Spiner. I have a couple of them. He's fantastic. And so I can add this to my Star Trek singer collection. Also, I suppose we should check to see if Gerardi, um, Gerardi's, uh, the actor that plays Gerardi, has any other recordings of her voice. You know, we've talked about that on this podcast. And after Sabriel and I chat about it, so off the air, I realized Alison Pill, the singer, or rather the actor who plays Agnes Gerardi, I have some of her songs in my collection. <laughs> oh, my. Okay. So I knew that she was in the movie Scott Pilgrim. But I didn't realize that she was actually singing in the band, the Sex Bob-Bombs, and oh. the Scott Pilgrim soundtrack has the songs that they play in the movie. And so you can actually look her up, and her discography includes Scott Pilgrim versus the World official soundtrack. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a deep dive. <laughs> <laughs> now, one thing, actually two things about this episode that I was surprised by, I watch the opening credits every single week. I never skip them. Sometimes it spoils it because it's going to say who the guest appearance is by. I'm like, oh, now I'm not surprised when Jonathan Frake shows up or whatever. Uh, this week, the credits listed neither John Delancey nor Brent Spiner. And I feel like last week, it was sort of ending on an ominous note, discovering that Brent Spiner's character is a mad scientist. We also have no idea what's going on with John Delancey's character, why is Q acting so strange? I feel like there's a lot we need to know about those two characters and for them to not appear this week means that they're going to have to cram a lot more in in the remaining three episodes of the season. You're right, especially if this is supposed to be about how Q um, forces Picard into a reckoning for something that he has done. Right. Yeah, so I, I hope that they're not going to have to rush things last week's episode was the shortest episode of the season this week was longer but still not an hour long and discovery has been known to do episodes that are longer than an hour usually toward the end of the season so maybe picard is going to do that maybe they're just going to have some uh disproportionately long episodes coming up but they are they still have a lot of ground to cover there are a lot of threads this season right um my prediction is that this is going to be somehow about uh, Picard's relationship with Laris. Like that's going to be one of the biggest or the biggest threads, longest threads. Um, and then uh, somehow um, his relationship with the Q as well. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm very curious to know the Q's relationship with the Borg because there's something there. There's something. It's not a coincidence that the queen is here. Right. And I, I need to figure out what's going on with all that. Unless maybe the continuum has somehow been infiltrated by the Borg at some point. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I feel like the Borg that we saw at the beginning of this season is going to be some sort of amalgamation of the Borg queen and Agnes Gerati. And that iteration of the Borg is somehow going to be less of a threat than the Borg we are traditionally familiar with. And so I feel mm -hmm. like that's one of the goals of this season is to come up with a, an alternative Borg, basically, that is less of a threat to the Q. Oh, okay. So, and then that would help explain why there is no more mention of the Borg in Discovery's timeline once they get to the far-flung future. I don't know. Also, in this season premiere, they said that this might be the best ally the Federation has ever had. That and is true. And if that's true, then how come we don't know anything about them You know, 900 years from now? Right. Yeah. Or very very interesting. Unless years. they're just um, holding back on that until we're able to get the reveal from this season. Could be. I mean, I'm sure that there is somebody at Paramount Plus who is overseeing all the shows and making sure that they're not contradicting each other. True. Because um, fans would be upset. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
So, anything else we overlooked in this week's episode? Anything you want to comment on? Um, I can't really think of anything off the top of my head. Um, like reviewing my thoughts on things. Um, no, I, I can't really think that we missed anything. Well, I just realized that Orla Brady, who plays Laris and Talon, they have each now been in exactly four episodes. So, oh. so she is no more or less one character than the other. It's the chief parody. Presumably, she'll continue to appear as Talon in the remaining three episodes. So she'll be more Talon than Laris. Uh, yeah. I will say about this episode that my favorite parts of this episode were any scene that had Talon or any scene that had Teresa. Yes, the, um, both of those actors were uh, doing a great job of carrying their scenes and Really, um, the writers gave them a, a lot of lines that helped carry that helped move the story forward too. Yeah, there was a, a brief scene with Seven and Rafi where they're joking about who the main characters were. Oh, that was what I wanted to mention. That was what I was trying to think of when you were asking me if I if there were anything else. Yes, that was. I, I, I loved I loved the the fourth wall break there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody thinks they are the main character of their own story. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, but the, yeah, how, how dare she kiss him? We're the main <laughs> character. We're the, we're the, we're the main, um, we're the main story. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That was a fun scene, but it was short. Rafi and seven didn't contribute a lot this week. Uh, but I, I really did like, uh, Teresa and Talon. I'm looking forward to seeing more of them. Uh, me too. Um, I, speaking of, uh, Rafi and, uh, seven, um, I did like the, the, the coffee line where um, Rafi was saying, you don't do anything without your coffee, and yet you <laughs> haven't touched your coffee all day. <laughs> I did find it interesting that Seven recognized the Borg encryption because this would have been encryption codes used 20 years ago by the Borg in a different timeline. Right, yes. And like they don't cycle their codes? That's really poor security. <laughs> <laughs> well, not, they don't cycle their codes as frequently as they cycle their um, shield technology. Clearly, they have to modulate those frequencies. <laughs> yeah. So. so, Mark, remind our listeners, is there anywhere online that they can follow you? Um, actually, I have very little online presence, um, except uh, I am at Instagram, on Instagram, rather. Um, it's rugger underscore daddy. Awesome. We will include a link to that in the show notes at transporterlock.com. Well, Commodore Mark, thank you so much for filling in this week. It's been great chatting with you again. Thank you so much for having me again. Uh, it was a pleasure being here. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. <laughs>